Welcome to the Community Health Cast brought to you by the Queen's Community Health Board. My name is Deborah Raddall, and I'm here today, as usual, with the lovely and talented podcast editor extraordinaire, Elizabeth Bailey. How's it going, Elizabeth? Just great, Deborah. I've been looking forward to this interview today. I'm really excited to talk with our subject. We should get right into it because it's a big subject. How does that sound? <laughs> Sounds great. Okay. Let's meet her. According to the Canadian Human Rights Commission, access to adequate housing is a human right for everyone in Canada. But I have come to understand that housing insecurity is a concern for many people. Further, it's not just a big city issue. It happens in all communities. And joining us today to talk about this issue is Lisa Ryan. Lisa is a passionate and outspoken advocate for the right to housing and ending homelessness. She has been regularly invited at events to speak, focusing on social justice and this particular topic. Lisa has been a panelist for Public Forums and the CBC's The National, a guest speaker for their Sunday edition, and for Sirius XM Canada Satellite Radio. Currently, Lisa is the Rural Housing Development Coordinator for the South Shore region in Nova Scotia. Thank you for joining us on the Community HealthCast today, Lisa. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Now, as I mentioned in the opening, safe, adequate housing is said to be a human right in Canada. What are your thoughts on that? When the government announced that access to housing is a human right, and that comes directly from the UN Declaration on Housing as a Human Right, they were acknowledging that in order for us to meet people's needs, so their uh, the social determinants of health within an individual, we need to meet their basic needs, which is food, shelter, and that shelter has to be safe, accessible, and affordable. And so when we look at like complex issues like addictions or mental health or homelessness, all of those things cannot be addressed until we ensure that the person has access to a safe space where they can live, thrive, and pursue wellness. That's a really good point. And it leads me into my next question. For those of us that might not really understand what the criteria would be, what does safe, adequate, affordable housing actually mean? In order for housing to be considered safe and adequate, it means that it doesn't have negative health impacts on an individual. So access to running water, adequate plumbing, there's no mold, that your heat sources are well insulated so you're not losing your heat or your air conditioning in the summer. Things like that would be considered adequate and safe. Also, having selections of what neighborhood you want to live in, especially for victims leaving domestic violence. So having access to units that are considered safe, able to be locked and have, you know, security involved, that would be considered part of that. With regards to the affordable side of things, it would be 30% of your income would go towards your housing. What we're seeing right now as a trend is that the majority of individuals, whether you're low income, you're working poor, or you're even the rapidly disappearing middle class, the majority are paying over 50% of their income, which means less money towards nutritious food. And we know that when individuals don't have access to nutritious food, their mental well-being and their physical health deteriorate, which leads to mental health crises. It leads to more cost with regards to hospitalizations and doctor visits, which then increase our taxation. Who is most affected? 
Right now, we're the town of Bridgewater and most of Nova Scotia have been listening to trying to start coordinated access systems, which will give us core data on who is most affected. But currently, from what we're seeing from frontline agencies through their data, it is seniors who seem to be very at risk of being in inadequate housing situations. Also, again, women and single parent families who are leaving domestic violence situations. And then we have a large number that are coming out of foster care. So youth um, who are aging out of foster care. And I would suggest that that actually we're seeing that's a symptom of the root, which is the, the families who are struggling. So it's hard to say that there's like a certain demographic because we just don't have that data yet. Seeing from the front lines and what we're hearing is that this is affecting entire communities. The hard part is because we don't have prevention built into any of our services. So it's not built into our RCMPs that we do is very reactionary. We, we treat a symptom. What we're seeing are symptoms. So to try to drive our community towards what is the root cause is going to be a broader picture. You're referencing the town of Bridgewater. Now, do those numbers, do they track here for us in Queens County as well? We're not really sure how that system is going to roll out, but when the coordinated access system begins, because the services are so connected, so because it's Lunenburg County, Queens County, and they're all connected, the agencies that work within that kind of bubble are all working throughout all of those counties. So we will have, over the next three years, very core idea of what's happening in Queens County, as well as in Lunenburg County with regards to the loss of housing. Because there's assumptions that are happening there. Is it truly Airbnbs that are removing our affordable housing? Or are there other circumstances that are happening? And then also who is being affected and why are they most at risk? And what adequate supports do we need to be able to build them to the capacity to be able to self-resolve their own issues? The last thing we want to continue to do is build dependency on services that are reactionary. We want to start building self-resiliency within our communities so that people have the tools and skills that they need to be able to move themselves forward on the paths that they have chosen. And that's what I believe coordinated access does for communities. And we're seeing that straight across Canada. Um, If you want more information about that, you can always visit Built for Zero Canada. They have all of the toolkits that are available for communities that are interested in learning how to access data, specifically when it comes to homelessness, homelessness reduction, and homelessness preventions. From your experience working in your position, are you seeing certain trends? Yes, I've been working with the program, the housing support program here in Bridgewater, which covers Lunenburg and Queens County for housing support services. And one of the trends that we're seeing in our own data collection, there's a significant number of individuals who are struggling to access housing who are Indigenous. They're highly overrepresented in our numbers. That's not shocking when you look at like the national data, Indigenous populations are overrepresented across Canada, which means we need to be a little bit more aware of that and as well ensure that our programming is um, Indigenous. So we need Indigenous voices, Indigenous representation and Indigenous knowledge to be able to meet people and supply them with what they need. The other aspect that we're seeing here is there's two different categories of individuals that we see as a huge gap, and that is the 18 to 55-year-olds, single 18 to 55-year-olds. 
currently, if you are a female who is experiencing housing insecurity or homelessness, but you're not escaping domestic violence, or perhaps you don't identify that the cause of your situation is from violence, because many individuals don't, there's really no services to have access, especially if you have uh, mental health or addictions. And it's the same for males of that same age category. And that to me is concerning because those are the individuals who end up being shipped to urban centers to stay in their shelter services. And we have seen many times individuals who end up going into urban centers because they are not aware of their surroundings. They are the most at risk for human trafficking. And in fact, we have had to use different networks across Canada to retrieve individuals from human trafficking networks uh, because they had been snatched up out of the HRM and, and sent to places like Montreal. In your role as Rural Housing Development Coordinator, what can you help people with? What we're trying to do right now in my role is obviously to encourage communities to take on these coordinated access systems and to start working in collaborative manners. We're really great at supporting one another and talking with one another, but there's a move that needs to shift in our work, which moves us from like this collaboration into an actual collective impact where we move our work to be long-term focused and not just crisis driven. And so that's part of my role is to help encourage those relationships so that the correct people are at the table and those people understand the resources within their community so that we know where individuals can fit. It's also going to require us to take a look at how we are operating and ensure that the funding that we're receiving is actually assisting the individuals in long-term ways that requires advocacy. So that means talking to property management companies and to landlords and finding out what are their requirements for their tenants and how do we support individuals to be good tenants when we're placing them into housing. That requires a lot of wraparound supports, some skills training, all of those things that need to be built into our programming. It also means that we talk to the provincial government and ensure that the money that they have allocated towards housing initiatives, we have rural housing funding that is specific to housing development for homelessness prevention that comes from the federal government. It was through the Reaching Home announcement that we need to come to our rural communities. And the majority of the rural communities around here don't quite understand that there is money to develop housing. There's actually quite a lot of money right now. Lisa, municipal elections are fast approaching. What can you tell us about the role and responsibilities that municipalities can play in this housing issue? So often we hear municipalities say housing is not a municipal issue. It's a provincial Mm -hmm. issue. But in fact, across the country and across the states and even in Europe, when we see major impacts happening with housing, it's always been driven by a municipality. In fact, the rest of Canada, like even Ontario, housing is actually delivered by municipalities. Atlantic Canada is very different in the fact that our housing sits within the province instead of municipalities. There's a lot of things that municipalities can do. Inclusive zoning is a big one. Inclusive zoning means ensuring that when developers are coming to your communities, a few things are in their agreements to be allowed to develop. 
A certain percentage of units need to be earmarked as affordable. So 30% of the income of an individual needs to be able to be allocated for these units. That avoids the rampant construction of luxury condos that really only the rich can afford and the middle class and the working poor and even low income individuals just don't qualify for So ensuring all developments include a percentage of their units to be earmarked as affordable is a big thing. Also ensuring that units are accessible. So universally accessible individuals who may find themselves in wheelchairs or needing to have any kind of like physical mobility assistance, they need to have access to units as well. Seniors need to have access to units that are accessible. That is what I mean when I'm talking about inclusive housing. It also means that we have housing that's developed for Indigenous people, by Indigenous people, and led by Indigenous people. So it's it's the zoning. And then when developers, when we do call-outs for developers to come, or when developers say, hey, we want to buy that land and we are going to build this, there's still up to the municipality to approve those kinds of things. When they are doing those things, the contract needs to include, if you are planning on developing here, these are the requirements of what your development needs to include, right? That makes sense. Yeah. So that's a big one. The next one that can happen, and we see it in, different again, different communities, municipalities creating these funding pots. The funding pots then go and are, are usually issued out to, as an RFP, and they're issued out to communities for agencies to apply, and those it empowers agencies to be able to do their own nonprofit developments. So you may have co-op housing, which can be mixed income housing. So individuals that live there may pay a higher rate than other individuals, but it all kind of goes into this pot so that everyone can live there. Also, municipalities can also do land banking. So when they have properties within the area that maybe are decrepit or derelict and the property owner has refused to maintain the property and maybe it's like an actual safety hazard within the community, municipalities do have the right to be able to expropriate the land and then sell that land back to nonprofits to to be able to develop at a very low cost or even at no cost to the developer, depending on the program that they set up. Wow. There seems to me that there's so many options there that municipalities can explore and take advantage of. So one of the things that I think is really important for municipalities to know and developers, they need to understand the federal initiatives around housing and all of the grants and uh, money that's being made available right now. I don't think anyone actually understands the broadness of what the federal government has right now with regards to development of housing and how much money is available through the Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corporation. And there are tons of programs that people can apply for to help them with developments. There's money available And then again, through Reaching Home. So Reaching Home is the federal government's response to the statement, every Canadian deserves the right to have access to safe, adequate and affordable housing as it's a human right. So there is this money that's been doled out to provinces to be able to address housing within their area. And it's up to municipalities and communities to ensure that that money is spent as adequately as possible and in the ways that make the most impact within our communities. I grew up in a rural community and I understand that people, our neighbors take take care of us, that there is this camaraderie. And I feel like municipalities and rural communities can do so much 
when they understand what is available to them and grow our communities to include everyone. That's beautiful, Lisa, and it makes a lot of sense. Some people have reported that there have been incidents of discrimination in housing. What help is available in these cases? That's a great question. So you're absolutely right. People are being discriminated against. It's very hard for the tenancy board to be able to document and take action on any of these cases because we are at such a low vacancy rate that landlords and property owners don't actually have to give individuals reasons to why they are overlooked. Oftentimes what happens is applications come in, landlords and property owners can look at the the applications and then base decisions on things that really shouldn't be considered. So things like they're coming with a housing Nova Scotia subsidy or they are low income or they have a, it's a single parent with a few children. What we need is a stronger database of that happening. And we've been talking a lot about this because I feel like when housing is lacking and we have low vacancy rates such as this, the people who always end up suffering the most are the ones who are most vulnerable. And oftentimes the ones who will not openly speak about their experiences because they're just trying to get a roof over their head. We need to have a little bit more legal action. It's easy to see how this is a a problem that impacts an entire community, not simply the people that don't have the secure housing. What can our listeners do? How can they advocate for affordable housing? Community members can educate themselves by visiting sites like the Built for Zero Canada website to understand these systems that can be put in place so that communities can thrive. They can also look at the right to housing initiatives, obviously being involved in their politics and understanding what their candidates are going to do with regards to housing. And then also looking at things like rent control and what does that mean and a basic living wage. What does that mean? What will that do? Also being sure that we support our local economy by shopping as local as possible. Because if we want to have affordable housing and we want to have a thriving community, then we need to make sure that people can stay employed in our community and make livings in our community. And that requires us to spend our dollars here. So increasing our capacity in spending our money locally means that we're putting money back into our own economy, which means the things that municipalities, like I said, that funding pot, all of a sudden, maybe they can do that because there's more money staying in our community. And that means more tax dollars, which means more services. It all kind of grows. What are three things you want our listeners to take away from this conversation? I want them to know that having safe, vibrant, healthy communities is completely possible when we all work together. That having affordable housing, it doesn't have to look shoddy or decrepit. It actually can be beautiful and environmentally sustainable. And that ending these social issues like homelessness is completely possible and within our reach. And it is happening in places across Canada. It's happening where communities are ending homelessness. So if they can do it, the resiliency of rural Nova Scotia can assuredly do it because we are amazing when we work together. Well, that was beautifully said. I have goosebumps on my arms right now. Thank you so much, Lisa, for coming and sharing your perspective. And you have certainly given me a lot to think about. Well, thank Thank you for having me. It was entirely our pleasure. For more resources on this topic, or to learn more about the Queen's Community Health Board, visit us on Facebook 
at Queen's Community Health Board or call coordinator Elizabeth Bailey at 902-298-0401.